Good evening, everybody. It's 7 o'clock on Thursday night. That means it's time for Catholic education classes. We gather every Thursday evening at 7 here at the Gathering Place in Rushi, downtown Rushi, right next to Busher's Market. You're all invited to come and join us. We can always use a bigger crowd. All you folks out on YouTube, we welcome you tonight, and let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds to know your truth, and to love your truth, and to live your truth every day. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight is Apologetics Night. We use our booklet, Beginning Apologetics. You can get that off of Amazon if you want and follow along. It's published by San Juan Catholic Seminars. And there's a whole series of these. There's like nine of these rather large booklets. And um, I plan on going through all of them. So just get the whole set. You won't, you won't be sad you did. They're fantastic explanations of the faith. And once again, as we go through apologetics, one of the main things, um, the, the people in this world who are going to like argue with the Catholic view of things are usually going to be non-Catholic Christians. And I want to say again, I totally love our non-Catholic Christian friends, Protestants, Evangelicals, Pentecostals, you name them. If they love Jesus, we love them. And um, we don't always agree. And here in this class, we explain... Uh, the Catholic viewpoint of many different um, doctrinal issues. And so that's what apologetics is. It's explaining the faith, defending the faith. And so uh, I welcome all non-Catholics to watch. Uh, know that we love you, and I, I simply want to explain the Catholic way of seeing these things. Last month, we looked at the Holy Eucharist. This month, we're going to look at the canon of the Bible, first of all, and then maybe start to get into sola scriptura, the Bible alone, as your guide in the faith. But tonight, we're going to start off on page 10, the canon of the Bible. Where did the canon come from? That's a very good question. Thinking Christians realize that if God has revealed himself to man, we must be able to know with assurance where that revelation can be found. Since we are staking our salvation on the truth of God's word, we need to know exactly and infallibly which books contain divine truth. Otherwise, we might look to the words of men for the word of God. 
Thus we need an authoritative list, or canon. That's what the word canon means. It's, a, it's an authoritative list. It's the official list of the inspired books of the Bible. Canon means a measuring standard. The canon of Scripture refers to a standard or official list of inspired books that make up the Bible. This reminds me of something that happened many years ago. Um, I was going into Walmart, and there was a fellow there who was handing out Bible tracts, and he was asking for donations. He was a Protestant Christian of some sort, and he was uh, going to go on a mission journey, and he was trying to raise money which is a fine thing, wonderful thing. I'm sure he loved the Lord greatly, but I thought I would spend a few minutes with this guy. <laughs> and um, I, I asked him a question. I said, uh, where'd the Bible come from? I said, you're out here passing out Bible tracts. I said, where did the Bible come from? And... Um, he said, oh, God gave it to us. I said, yeah, I believe that. Um, I said, uh, do you think it's God's word? He said, oh, yes, it's the word of God. I said, I believe that too. I said, but how did we, how did we get the Bible? He said, well, he said, God inspired people to write it. And that's how we got it. I said, yeah, people did, were inspired by God to write it. I said, but like, like the New Testament. Where did we get the New Testament from? He said, well, people were inspired by God, and they wrote it, and that's it. That's, that's where we got it from. I said, you don't understand me. I said, there were a lot of books written in the history of the world. I said, there are hundreds or thousands and thousands of books. I said, how do we know? I said, how many books in the New Testament? He said, 27. I said, yeah. How did we get that list of 27? Why isn't there 26 or 25 or 28 or 30 or 100 or 5? I said, how is it that we have 27 books in the New Testament? He said, well, he said, that's just what the New Testament is. He said, you look at any Bible. He said, there's 27 books in the New Testament. I said, yeah. I said, but there had to, somebody had to come up with the first Bible. I said, uh, did the Bible just fall out of the sky and it fell on the sidewalk? And somebody picked it up and said, wow, I got the Bible. He said, no. He said, the Bible didn't fall out of the sky. I said, well, where did we get it then? He said, I told you, people wrote it. And that, that's how we, I said, but how do we get that list, that 27 book list? And we went around and around and around. And after about five or 10 minutes, he finally said the magic words, which I knew eventually he would say. <laughs> he said, well, I don't know where we got the list. I said, what? You're here in front of Walmart and you are passing out Bible literature 
and you are telling people this is the word of God and that they should live and die by what it says and you don't know where it came from? I said, how do you know it's the word of God? He said, well, it is the word of God. Everybody knows that. I said, the next guy that walks out of that Walmart door could be a Muslim. Ask him what the word of God is. He'll tell you it's the Koran. The next guy after that might be a Mormon. Ask him what the word of God is. He might say the Bible, but he'll also say the Book of Mormon is the word of God. I said, how do you know that these 27 books are the word of God? You don't even know where they came from. He said, well, Mr. Smarty Pants, do you know where they came from? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I said it was Pope Damasus and the Council of Rome in 393 that gave us the list of 27 books, and then the Council of Carthage in 397. And I said, every council since then has agreed that these are the 27 books that are inspired by God and should be in the New Testament. He said, that's a lie. He said, that's not true. He said, Catholics don't know anything about the Bible. He said, we never got this list from no pope and no council. I said, well, I said, that's, where, that's what history tells us. I said, how about you and me? I said, maybe they have an encyclopedia inside of Walmart. I said, let's go in there and let's look in the encyclopedia and look up origin of the New Testament and let's see where it came from. He said, no, you can't trust encyclopedias. They're written by Catholics, so you can't trust an encyclopedia. Oh. <laughs> uh, we had quite a conversation, and I think I failed in trying to get him to understand that without the Catholic Church and the authority of the Catholic Church, you wouldn't have a New Testament. You would have no way of knowing which books are inspired and which books aren't. But I tried. So that's what we're doing tonight. We're going to try to explain how did we get the canon of the Bible? Where did it come from? What does it mean? Well, we're gonna start with the Old Testament first. We're on page 10, the Old Testament. The question is, why do Catholic and Protestant Bibles have a different number of books in the Old Testament? The Protestant Old Testament is based on the Palestinian or Hebrew canon used by Hebrew-speaking Jews in Palestine. The Catholic Old Testament is based on the Alexandrian or Greek canon used by the Greek-speaking Jews throughout the Mediterranean, including Palestine. The city of Alexandria in Egypt possessed the greatest library in the ancient world. And during the reign of Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, who died in 246 BC, a translation of the entire Hebrew Bible into Greek was begun by 70 Jewish scholars. 
according to tradition, six from each of the twelve tribes. From this Alexandrian translation, completed between 250 and 125 B.C., we get the term Septuagint, Latin for 70. There may have been 70 or 72 scholars, we're not sure. But that's the number of translators who did this translation from Hebrew into Greek. And so they called it the 70. And that's Septuagint. This Greek translation of the Old Testament was very popular because Greek was the common language of the entire Mediterranean world by the time of Christ. Hebrew was a dying language. Jews in Palestine usually spoke Aramaic. And so it's not surprising that the Septuagint was the translation used by Jesus and the New Testament writers. In fact, 300 quotations from the Old Testament found in the New Testament are from the Septuagint. Remember also that the entire New Testament was written in Greek. Greek was a very popular language at that time. The Septuagint contains 46 books. The Hebrew canon contains only 39 books. Why are there seven fewer books in the Hebrew canon? All right. Just a little history here. The Hebrew canon was established by Jewish rabbis at Jamnia in Palestine about the year 100 AD, perhaps in reaction to the Christian church, which was using the Alexandrian canon. The Jews at Jamnia rejected seven books from the Hebrew canon found in the Septuagint. Those books are Wisdom, Sirach, Judith, Baruch, Tobit, and 1st and 2nd Maccabees, as well as portions of Daniel and Esther. Chiefly on the ground that they could not find any Hebrew versions of these books, which the Septuagint supposedly translated into Greek. Now, take a look at the footnote. The Council of Jamnia used four criteria to determine their canon. They accepted only those books which were, one, written in Hebrew, two, in conformity with the Torah, three, older than the time of Ezra, which is about 400 B.C., and four, written in Palestine. So, they were looking to collect the Hebrew scriptures, and they used these criteria. And one of the main ones was you had to have it in Hebrew, the original language. And they couldn't find copies of these books in Hebrew. And so they got left out. They had copies of these books in Greek, in the Septuagint, but they said we're not going to count it as part of our scriptures unless we have it in Hebrew. Later, like in modern times, we have found 
some scrolls in Hebrew of these books. And so they existed. It's just that these Jewish rabbis in that town couldn't find any. And so they got left out. The Christian church continued to use the Septuagint. When the church officially decided which books comprise the canon of the Bible at the councils of Hippo in 393 and the council of Carthage in 397, it approved the 46 books of the Alexandrian canon as the canon for the Old Testament. So the same time we got the 27 books of the New Testament officially, we got the Old Testament books officially. For 16 centuries, the Alexandrian canon was a matter of uncontested faith. Each of the seven rejected books is quoted by the early church fathers as scripture or as inspired, right along with the undisputed books. We take a look at the footnote on that one. Some of the fathers of the church include Polycarp, Irenaeus, Clement, and Cyprian. For a collection of patristic quotations from each of the disputed books, see the book called The Fathers Know Best Old Testament Canon. And there they give many of the quotations from the church fathers where they're quoting the disputed books, the ones that were left out by the Jewish rabbis. So you understand? Mm -hmm. um, in, in 1529, Martin Luther proposed the Palestinian canon of 39 books in Hebrew as the Old Testament canon. Nobody had done that for 1,500 years. All Christians had accepted the Septuagint and the 46 book list. So this was not an issue at all. Luther found justification for removing the seven books from the Bible in the old concerns of St. Jerome and the Council of Jamnia that the Greek books had no Hebrew counterparts. However, research into the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran has discovered ancient Hebrew copies of some of the disputed books, making their rejection unsupportable on those grounds. They didn't have them in Hebrew, so they said, well, we won't use them. Well, we do have them in Hebrew, so it's just that they couldn't find any right where they were. But here's the real question. And this is what I think is so important. Which Old Testament would you rather use? The Old Testament used by Jesus, the New Testament writers, and the early church? Or the Old Testament used by the Jews who rejected Jesus and persecuted the early church? The people who are giving us the 39-book list... Well, they're, they don't follow Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They persecuted the church. Some people say, well, it's, it's their Bible. It's the Hebrew Bible. And they were Hebrew. They were rabbis. 
But the thing is, Jesus and the 12 apostles were Jews too. Yeah. They were just as much Jewish as these guys. And Jesus happens to be the Son of God. And if Jesus calls these books Scripture, who in the heck are we as followers of Jesus to say they are not Scripture? I'm thinking, Martin Luther, what are you doing? You're believing a list put together by Jews who reject Jesus, and you're not accepting the list that Jesus himself accepted, and the 12 apostles accepted, and the entire Christian church had accepted for 1,500 years. To me, it's a no-brainer. If your Bible includes the seven books, you follow Jesus in the early church. If your Bible omits the seven books, you follow the non-Christian Jews at Jamnia and Martin Luther, a man who wanted to throw out even more books, James, Esther, and Revelation, and who deliberately added the word alone to sacred scripture in his German translation of Romans 3.28. Yeah, Martin Luther didn't like what James, the letter of James said. It contradicted very plainly his doctrine of sola fide. And so he said, throw it away. He said, quote, throw Jimmy into the fire, unquote. <laughs> he said it was an epistle of straw. It disagreed with him. Again, the arrogance of Martin Luther is breathtaking. One of the 12 apostles writes a letter. It disagrees with something that Luther says, so that one of the 12 apostles is wrong and I'm right. Unbelievable. Now, the New Testament. So that's, that's where the Old Testament list comes from. Where does the New Testament canon come from? Let's take a look at that. The first words of the New Testament was written about 50 A.D., uh, 1 Thessalonians. The last word between 90 and 100 A.D., the book of Revelation. Well, I'm going to stop right there. That's what this author is saying. You will find other authors, other historians who disagree. There's not a 100% agreement on when, on which book was written first in the New Testament, and there's not a 100% agreement on when it was written. Different people have different timelines. So anytime I see anything where it just says this is here and that is there, well, that's their opinion. There are other people who have a different opinion. I'm not saying that I know at all. I'm just saying, I've read enough stuff that there are different authors who have different opinions of what was written first, what was written second, and so on. But it looks, most scholars and historians would put this in the basic ballpark. There's a total of 27 books, all of which are accepted as canonical and inspired by Catholics and Protestants alike. So the Catholic Bibles and the Protestant Bibles, I know Martin Luther wanted to throw James out, 
but he wasn't convincing enough. It never did get thrown out of the New Testament canon, and it is still in the New Testament canon today for all the Christian churches that I know of. The question is, who determined the New Testament canon of inspired books? Where do we get the list of 27? That's what I asked my friend at Walmart, and he didn't know. The Bible didn't fall from heaven pre-printed, so where did we get it? How do we know we can trust every book? Various bishops developed lists of inspired books. In the early church, different bishops in different towns would have a list of books that they felt were from the apostles and were inspired by God. Melito, Bishop of Sardis, in 175, had a list. St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, in 185, had a list. Eusebius, Bishop of Caesarea, in 325, he had a list. And other bishops the same way. So in your major cities, major bishops had their own list. That was untenable. You cannot have a Catholic who lives in Caesarea, and when he lives there, these are the books that are inspired by God and I need to live my life by them. But he moves to Alexandria, and then there's a different list. And some of the books that he was following are now not in the list. And there's different ones there. A lot of the lists were similar. There was a broad consensus on quite a few of the books. But there were others that were hotly debated and hotly disputed. So we needed an authority to determine which books are the inspired word of God and which ones are not. Pope Damasus in 382 prompted by the Council of Rome, wrote a decree listing the present Old Testament and New Testament canon of 73 books. The Council of Hippo in North Africa in 393 approved the present Old Testament and New Testament canon of 73 books. The Council of Carthage in North Africa in 397 approve the same Old Testament and New Testament canon. This is the council which many Protestants and Evangelicals take as the authority for the New Testament canon of books. Pope St. Innocent I in 405 AD approved the 73 book canon and closed the canon of the Bible. He said, these are the books that we believe are inspired by God, and we do not expect to receive any more. Now, could a book be added? Theoretically, it is possible. I mean, if somehow, some way, we found a scroll that went back to the time of John or Peter or one of the apostles, and we and the church with absolute certainty could say, yes, this is from the hand of St. Peter or St. John. I guess the church could uh, canonize 
that book and add it to the list. But it hasn't happened for 2,000 years, and uh, we don't expect it to happen. But it would have to be something like that. It would have to be something that was written by one of the apostles. Mm -hmm. Any new revelation? No, 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 no. You know, that's where you get heresies from. People coming along saying they have some new revelation, a new book, something you got to follow, that they just received from God. Sorry, there is no new revelation. That is a closed canon. The canon of the Bible was officially determined in the 4th century by Catholic councils and Catholic popes. That was a real tough thing for my Walmart friend to take. <laughs> Especially since he knew that Catholics don't know anything about the Bible. Until the canon was decided, there was much debate. Some were of the opinion that certain canonical books, the book of Hebrews, Jude, Revelation, and 2 Peter, were not inspired. They were heavily disputed books. while others held that certain non-canonical books, the Shepherd of Hermes, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, and the letters of Barnabas and Clement were inspired. Those are neat books, and I have most of them. Years ago, I was at some sort of conference, and, and I saw this book of... Uh, early church writings and it was a book that had a collection of these and it's got the shepherd of Hermas, it's got the gospel of thomas it's got the letter of barnabas it's got the letter of clement and i've read all those it also has the didache uh, which is a first century book which is very cool and uh, the didache means the teaching uh, the, the title was the teaching of the 12 apostles yeah and, and it was considered for the canon, but it didn't make the cut. Still fun to read. And you can learn a lot of stuff from these books, and they're very interesting. I mean, they are first century books. Yeah. But they were not considered the inspired word of God. So you can't bank on them. Do you know what, they, what kind of uh, logic they use to determine inspired? Okay. By? A number of things. Because I, the reason why I say that is because, I mean, Barnabas, wasn't he, he was a... Barnabas was a companion with St. Paul. Yeah, so I mean, you would think that probably what he's writing oh, is, is he's mentioned. He's mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, he, he's Gospel a, of Peter, you he, know. Yeah, okay. All right. You have a very good question. You say, well, what was, what was their thinking? How did they, how did they sort them out? There was a whole number of things. One thing is they looked back and they said, like, which of the very early apostolic fathers attributed authenticity to this or that gospel? It's like they all said the gospel of Matthew was written by the apostle Matthew. And, like, nobody debated that. Mm -hmm. They said all, all the ancient church fathers were unanimous on that. So that's a shoe in. It's where you have debates on some of these other ones. 
like the Gospel of Thomas. It was a forgery. The Gospel of Peter, it's a forgery. People often put famous names to their writing so that other people would believe it. Okay? So you had to kind of sort historically which of these have always been considered authentic and which ones have a checkered past? Which ones, many bishops said no, many bishops said yes. Okay, that was one of the criteria. Another criteria is if you've got a book that's doubtful, if there's anything in it that contradicts a book that we know is authentic, well, then it can't be in the inspired Word of God because it's contradicting something that we know is the Word of God. And so, for example, like in the Gospel of Thomas, it's got the little boy Jesus making clay birds. Yeah, every, every time there's something on the History Channel about about the Gospel of Thomas, it, I always seem to see that they talk about the Yeah, he makes story. little clay birds and he touches them and then they become alive and they fly away. Yeah. I mean, they got the little boy Jesus just doing miracles for the fun of it. Uh, which we have no knowledge of anything like that. Uh, and it doesn't quite seem to go with the theology that we see in the other Gospels. And, and there, are some, there are some stories in there that are just not congruent. They don't harmonize with what we see in the other Gospels. Mm -hmm. And so it got left out because we come to the conclusion it really wasn't written by Thomas. If it had been actually written by Thomas, or if it had been written by Peter, first of all, they wouldn't have something contradictory to what the other ones say. Because the Holy Spirit is guiding the apostles in giving their witness, both orally and in their writing. And the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict himself. And so, that's, that's, it took time. We didn't get we didn't get the list till almost 400 A.D. And these things were all written before 100 A.D. It took 300 years to come up with the list. So it wasn't something that was done overnight. A lot of prayer and discussion by the uh, bishops of the church and the popes of the church to come up with what we finally came up with. The formal church decision settled the matter for the next 1,100 years. Not until the Reformation was there any more debate about the contents of the Bible. Historically, the Catholic Church used her authority to determine which books belonged to the Bible and to assure us that everything in the Bible is inspired. Apart from the church, we simply have no way of knowing either truth. You have no way of knowing which books should be in the Bible. And even now, as we are centuries and centuries removed, we still need the authority of the church to say, this is an accurate translation. This is, somebody could have changed it back in the year 600. How would we know that? 
But you see, the church has been here all these centuries, and the church has protected the scripture and guarded the scripture, and we don't let anybody change it. Luther wanted to change his translation of Romans where it says we, a, a man is saved by faith. Well, he wrote, he translated, a man is saved by faith alone. That's a totally different meaning. If I say you live by breathing, or you live by breathing alone. <laughs> One is true and the other is false. Putting that word alone on the end changes everything. When Luther was confronted with this, like, hold it, that's not what it says. You added that. He said, that's what St. Paul meant to say. I was just making it clearer. Ha! <laughs> no, you're changing the meaning. You change the words, you change the meaning. And so, back to our book, Martin Luther himself admits, quote, We are obliged to yield many things to the Catholics, that they possess the word of God which we received from them. Otherwise, we should have known nothing at all about it, unquote. Luther is admitting that Christians owe their Bible to the efforts of the Catholic Church. You have to. There's no other way. That's historically where it came from. The New Testament, was every book was written by a Catholic. It was determined to be inspired by the Catholic Church, and it's been guarded and protected by the Catholic Church ever since. Luther's statement supports our argument that without the decisions of the church, we would not know which books of the Bible are inspired. As St. Augustine says, quote, I would put no faith in the Gospels unless the authority of the Catholic Church directed me to do so, unquote. What he's saying is, the truth resides in the authority of the Catholic Church. So when they say, this book is inspired, I can trust it. They say, that book is not inspired, I can trust that decision. Without the authority of the Catholic Church, guided by the Holy Spirit, we don't have any assurance that we know what we're talking about. St. Augustine recognizes that the only way to determine which books are inspired is to accept the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. Crucial points. One, historically, the Bible is a Catholic book. The New Testament was written, copied, and collected by Catholic Christians. The official canon of the books of the Bible was authoritatively determined by the Catholic Church in the 4th century. Thus it is from the Catholic Church that the Protestants have a Bible at all. Number two, Logically, logically, the church with the authority to determine the infallible word of God must have the infallible authority and guidance of the Holy Spirit. As we have seen, apart from the declarations of the Catholic Church, we have absolutely no guarantee that what is in the Bible is the genuine word of God. 
To trust the Bible is to trust the authority of the church, which guarantees the Bible. It is contradictory for Protestants to accept the Bible and yet reject the authority of the Catholic Church. That is a very important point. It is totally illogical to say, Oh, I believe this Bible is the Word of God. This is the Word of God, but I don't accept the authority of the Catholic Church. The authority of the Catholic Church is what determines which books are in the Bible. And therefore, if, like I told the, the Walmart friend, my Walmart friend, I said, look. He said, I don't believe the Pope is infallible. I said, well, how can you believe in the New Testament then? If the Pope could make a mistake, maybe he made a mistake when he gave you that list of 27 books. Maybe there are some in there that are not inspired by God. And when you believe him and follow him, you're not following God's word because the Pope made a mistake. I mean, his whole religion, his whole life is based on following the books of the Bible. But it was the authority of the Pope and the Magisterium of the Catholic Church that gave us those books. Now, you can't have, when it comes to authority, you can never raise something to a higher authority than what you are. Let's take the military. Say you are a lieutenant in the military. Can you raise this fellow soldier to the rank of a general when you're only a lieutenant? No way. Only a general or higher could raise somebody to that rank. In, my, in the business world, a VP can't make somebody CEO. That's right. A VP is not going to make somebody CEO. You have got to have the authority. And you can never raise something to an authority higher than what you are. So if this is the word of God, which it is, if this is the infallible word of God, which it is, there had to be an infallible authority that gave us the books and said these are the word of God. Now, it would have been really simple if Jesus had simply written a book. Okay, we got a book from Jesus. <laughs> that would have been easy. He didn't do that, though. He inspired people to write. They wrote. But there were a lot of people not inspired by God to write who also wrote. So someone had to distinguish between the two. And someone had to canonize these books and say they are the word of God. That authority itself has to be infallible. If it can make a mistake, well, maybe it made a mistake and we don't have the right list. So it's useless. And later, as we talk, that same authority, infallible authority, guided by the Holy Spirit, guards it, protects it, preserves it, proclaims it, and interprets it. I am a very fallible person. If I read it, I could very well interpret it wrongly. You have to have a living human being on this earth who speaks for God, who is infallible, who can give you the definite meaning. Otherwise, you're lost in endless argumentation. So is the um, catechism infallible? 
Well... Because, I mean, because it was proved by JP2, right? Okay. Not everything that the Pope teaches, in fact, most things that the Pope says or teaches, is not considered infallible. It's when the magisterium is defining a matter of faith or morals. For example, in the Catechism, there are certain things that would be called pastoral. Certain things that we look at as a certain way of going about something, well, those things yeah. are certainly not infallible. It's only when there is a definition of a matter of faith or morals that is to be believed by all Catholics for all time in all places. Okay? And there are some, so, of, there are yeah. some of those definitions, certainly, in the Catechism. The definition of the Blessed Trinity. Okay, that has been proclaimed, it has been uh, defined at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople in 381, that the three persons of the Blessed Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal, they are God in every way, three persons, but only one God. That doctrine of the Blessed Trinity is infallible, cannot change, will not ever change. And of course, things like that are taught in the catechism also. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are defined doctrines in the catechism okay. that are infallible. There are other things in the catechism that are more pastoral and open to uh, revision. Okay. Good question. Uh, finishing up here, logically, Protestants should not quote the Bible at all, for they have no way of determining which books are inspired, unless, of course, they accept the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. And if they accepted the authority of the Catholic Church, well, then they would become Catholics. So it is not logical for someone to say, I reject the authority of the Catholic Church, but I accept the Bible. That is not a logical position. But once again, I love my Protestant brothers and sisters. Not very many have ever thought this through. It's just simple as that. You're born into a, a, a Protestant household and you learn the Bible, it's the Word of God from the time you get. People don't think it through. My Walmart friend was a nice guy and he loved Jesus and he was spending his life out there trying to tell people about Jesus. And he did have, you know, the Word of God in his hands. He just didn't know why it was the Word of God. He had never, ever thought about it. Ninety-nine and nine-tenths of people have never thought about it. But when you think about it, it becomes pretty obvious that it's not logical to say, I believe in the Bible, but I don't believe in the authority of the church. So, I don't know if you want to answer this question tonight or a different night. Go right but, ahead. But I want to ask it, because I'm, you know, a different generation here. I have never met a Christian who has ever argued about the Bible, any, any, anything in the Bible or not in the Bible, it should be in the Bible, whatever. Never had, had any Christian argue me over biblical stuff. But I've had tons of non-believing people, atheists, so to speak. I don't know if they know that they're atheists, but they're atheists. <laughs> yeah. You know, just say, 
well, that that book it's just it's just a book, like it's just made up. How how could you defend the authenticity of right. just the historical uh, being of the Bible? Well, that okay, that it's a little bit different. I know it's a big question, right? And that is more of church history. There, um, you're right. In, in today's world, we're dealing with a lot of secularism and a lot of secular people. It's not an argument between Catholic and Protestant so much. It's an argument between Christian and atheist, uh, Christian and secularist, mm -hmm. and they just reject the whole thing outright. They, re as if you, if you. For those of you on YouTube, if you want to go back and listen to my um, uh, church history class, in the first one, we talk about the reality of Jesus, the historical Jesus, that he actually lived, yeah. died, resurrected. He actually did these miracles. And when you go back and you look at the history, and it's a long answer, but it becomes an absolute fact that Jesus lived, died, he did these miracles, he resurrected. There are hundreds of witnesses. There are thousands and thousands of witnesses to his miracles. He did thousands of miracles over a three-year period. I mean, that's what gives us a rational basis to say this man was also God. He did the things that God could do. You start with that, and from that fact that there's this Jesus of Nazareth who is the Son of God, then he gives power to his apostles. They write these things down. We believe they're guided by the Holy Spirit because this man, who was also God, he said to the apostles, I will send you the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all the truth. We put our faith in him. That's how we get to put faith in the Bible. Okay? It starts with Jesus. So, you don't start with the Bible with a secular atheist. You got to start with his. I think you have to start with history. And you have to make a real historical case for Jesus. I get tired of these people on YouTube and stuff, just, oh, it's a fairy tale, it never happened. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about, and they've never investigated it. People, in fact, there have been numerous atheists who have done a very serious investigation into, was Jesus real? Did he really do these things? Is he the son of God? And when they do a serious investigation, they almost always come to the conclusion, wow, he really was God. And his words really are the word of God. Uh, I might mention one, and for those on YouTube, check out Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. But he was, he was a really... Uh, Actually, you know what? I think that's on, like, they, they made a show on that. I, I think they I, did. I, I think it's on Netflix. I think they made a movie recently about this or, guy. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what it's all about. I saw a it, show I about think it. they made a movie about this film. I read the book. Yeah, okay. And he was an atheist. His wife was an atheist. But somehow, I forget what happened, she had a conversion. She became a Christian. She started believing in Christ. And he thinks, oh, man, this is the end of my marriage. I mean, like, this is crazy. So it was because of her conversion he decided uh, to do, a, like, he was an investigative journalist. He graduated from um, Yale Law School, Yale or Harvard Law School. The guy was a smart dude. And he was a writer for some newspaper and the law review or whatever. And so he decided to do a really in-depth investigation. Long story short, he became, historically, he became convinced I have to believe in this person because the facts are there. Mm -hmm. It would be totally illogical for me not to believe in him. Mm -hmm. And since he was driven by intellect and reason, he actually came to faith. And he had a conversion, and um, he's done great works. He wrote a book, The Case for Christ, The Case for Creation. He's got a whole bunch of books, and they're fantastic. He's not a Catholic. Uh, he has more to learn, <laughs> but he's a wonderful guy, I, you know, a wonderful Christian man, and he has, you know, and just like that, I will bet if he did the same investigative historical reconnaissance mission, looking back on the history of Protestantism and looking back at the beginnings of the early church, Studying the church fathers, I bet he would become a Catholic. Well, that's what Steve Ray did. That's what Steve Ray did. That's what hundreds, in modern times, hundreds of Protestant pastors mm -hmm. have done that. Yeah. They, when, when, they, when they do it, it's kind of scary. Mm -hmm. It's kind of scary because you think, man, I'm a Protestant minister. I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. If I become a Catholic, I can't be a Protestant minister anymore. Well, that's how um, Scott Hahn. Scott Hahn was. I, Steve yeah. Ray. I mean, well, I, I, well, Steve Ray wasn't a pastor though. Oh yeah, I don't know if he but, was a pastor, but, 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 but Scott Hahn. I, I, yeah. I, I listened to Scott Hahn's tape, and, and he was. It was more of a battle with the fact that he was a pastor. Right. You know, you're going to lose your job. For adult men, that's a big deal that you're going to lose your job I think, I if think, you change your beliefs. I think Steve Ray was more about his, his family. The, you that know. too. You could get very estranged from your family. They may not understand you. Um, I have a question, though. What Do you, do you know off the top of your head, our oldest uh, versions of the... Uh, of the text that we have. The oldest copies of New Testament books? Yeah. Uh, there are no originals okay. known to exist of any of the books of the Bible. Okay. Of the New Testament books, there, I think the oldest copies of certain individual books go back to the 4th or 5th century. Okay. And... You will find them in various museums throughout the world. The British Museum, the Vatican Library. There are various museums throughout the world that have some of the oldest copies. 
uh, in Greek okay. of various books of the New Testament. I do not know if there's like the oldest collection of all of them. I mean, yeah. you're going to find a book here, a book there. Okay. Uh, you got to remember, for 300 years, we were persecuted by the Roman Empire, and they would destroy scriptures. And, and so it's amazing that they've survived at all. But, and that, and they're written on very primitive paper. Yeah parchments and animal skins and all kinds of other things and so um, thank goodness for those monks and scribes down through the years in the monasteries copying them so that we have accurate uh, copies of the originals okay yeah well that puts us right at about eight o'clock and we finished that section I don't, I don't want to start the next section it's just about an hour long, and so um, uh, let's finish up with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides the church each and every day. Thank you for the magisterium that has preserved this beautiful word of God that we have in the Bible. Help us always to know you and love you as we read the inspired word and guide our lives so that we will uh, live it in such a way that we give honor and glory to you forever and ever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Join us every Thursday night at the Gathering Place in downtown Rushi for Catholic education classes. Next week, it's Catholic sexuality. It's going to be an exciting lesson from um, Sex and the Marriage Covenant, a book by John Kipley. Fantastic book. Hope to see you then.